Welcome back to another episode of the B2B Zero to 10 podcast, where we focus on helping business owners on their zero to 10 growth journey. This podcast is the intersection of strategy, tactics, trends, and even a little inspiration to help you grow your business and achieve your goals. I'm your host, Brett Trainer. Today, I welcome Ethan Butte back to the podcast. Ethan is the co-author of a fantastic new book called Human-Centered Communication, A Business Case Against Digital Pollution. This is Ethan's second book, and he's also the host of the highly regarded The Customer Experience Podcast. Today, we discuss his new book and why the timing couldn't be better. Ethan shares a number of his tactics and strategies that you can apply to your business today. I think the other important thing coming out of this book is it's not just uh, Ethan and his co-author, but they actually interviewed a number of industry experts in different areas and pulled together their thoughts and their recommendations as well towards becoming better in, at human-centered communication. So I think this is a fantastic episode. I'm a big believer, if you've been listening to this podcast and customer experience is a differentiator, and there's not a better person to break this down than with Ethan. So sit back, enjoy, take some notes. And as a favor, if you listen to this podcast, please do subscribe on iTunes or hit the follow button on Spotify. I would appreciate it. Now, let's get this interview started. Hey, Ethan, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much, Brett. I am so happy to be back. I appreciate you giving a look to the new book. I appreciate you inviting me back and I love what you're up to. And it is absolutely my pleasure. And those of you who are interested, we have to go all the way back to episode 43 when Ethan joined us. So shame on me for not having you back on before that, but this seems like the, the perfect opportunity um, with your new book. But before we jump into that, which we'll spend the majority of the time on, why don't you share with the audience, for those who don't recall from the previous episode, a little bit about your background and, and what you're doing today, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Cool. I built a career running marketing inside local television stations in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Chicago, and out here where I am now, Colorado Springs. After a dozen years, I was kind of bored of it and started doing a bunch of project work and ended up connecting with the two co-founders of BombBomb. And I joined them full-time over 10 years ago today, which you're not going to hear from very many folks working in software. And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm still at it. And so I started as the first and only marketing person, um, helped build out the team along with my longtime friend and team member, Steve Passanelli, who's our chief marketing officer. And uh, a couple of years ago, uh, transitioned from VP marketing to chief evangelist, which uh, has its own set of fun and interesting and challenging characteristics. And um, that's what I've been doing. And so I'm, I'm out talking about the problem of over-reliance on faceless typed out text when we all have cameras and great internet connections and the opportunity to be more personal and human and clear and connecting and effective every single day. And so I'm doing that on podcasts like this, writing books like Human Center Communication and the previous one, Rehumanize Your Business. Um, I also wrote another half book between those two books, uh, which, you know, if I had more, if I, if I took the time to add more stories and examples to it, it could have been a full book. And so I'm just, I'm exploring, teaching, sharing, learning, uh, around the principles of how and why to use video messages every day in the context of BombBomb, which is a software platform that's makes it easy to record and send and track the results of video messages. Yeah, it's awesome. And I, you know, I told you offline, I was energized and we jumped into the, the video messaging last time that we chatted. And I think it's, it's one of those things, it's got to make it a habit, right? Because I see how effective it is. When you send me a video message, I only got a few other folks at this point that are still doing it, but I'm a much more highly engaged with it. And, you know, again, it's so much more personal. I know I should be doing it. So that's why I'm like, I need you to have Ethan back on and then kick me in the butt to, to get me over the, uh, I say it's start line, but the, the continuation line. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Like, I mean, that, and that's one of the most interesting things about this space for me. Again, I've been highly reflective around this 10 year anniversary is like, I thought it would go a lot faster. And in the beginning it was difficult because internet connections were kind of garbage. Like when the company was legally founded, the iPhone didn't even exist yet. And everyone was on, everyone was on, you know, dial up. And so um, dial up internet. And so you couldn't even really even do it. And so, you know, flash forward three, four years into my time with BombBomb and we have our Google Chrome extension, which adds a tool set inside the Gmail inbox. Everyone's got smartphones. We've got iPhone and Android apps, integrations with Salesforce and other platforms like 
Zendesk and Outreach and Outlook and a bunch of other ones. And so there really isn't any reason except humans, A, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable on camera, which everyone is out of the gate. But then then B, as you've said, the habit of it, like we have these deep, deep habits. You and I, Brett, are deep enough into our careers that we have muscle memory and we're doing things subconsciously that we don't even think about because that's how we have done it for decades. And this becomes one of those things, you know, we don't, we don't stop and realize like I'm providing some positive feedback or corrective feedback to a team member instead of thinking like, oh my gosh, I'll be much more clear with the person and they'll understand my intent better if I record a video message. And instead we just type up the Slack message or type up the email and send it off. And then all of a sudden they feel like, you know, their boss is, you know, kicking their ass or something, you know, when in fact you're just providing some corrective feedback before the next one-on-one while it's still top of mind and while you can still make a difference in that person's day. And so there's just so many opportunities to use video messages to a establish personal connection. You and I haven't met yet, but we spend enough time on zoom and video messaging that I feel like I know you know, when I meet you, right. uh, it'll be, it'll be like, Oh yes, yeah, of course it's Brad. You know, it won't be this like, ah, is that, is that him over there? Like, no, I know right. who you are. Right. And so, um, so that's one, the other one is again, it's kind of emotion and tone, which I was mentioning there and maybe a corrective feedback situation, uh, or breaking bad news or, or making an apology to a customer that you maybe have, uh, failed in some way or breaking down detail and complexity. There's so many opportunities to make things that are really difficult or complicated to explain in two, three, four, five paragraphs. Um, just break it down with a recording or a screen recording and help people understand what they need to understand more effectively. If you just think about those three categories, personal connection, emotion and tone and detail and complexity, you'll start to see that you've already sent emails today that would have been better if they had been complemented by a video message. Anyway, that's my long way around. I feel like everyone can and should be doing this, not just for the benefit of our company, but for the benefit of all of our relationships and business success. Yeah, no, you're right. And as as we look to cut through the noise and, you know, differentiate ourselves, especially in the business sense, right, that you can find an angle. And I hate to call this an angle because it just makes sense to do this, you know, from a human perspective, right? And uh, I think you're right, because going all the way back in the career, it was either in person, you know, email, phone, you know, office phone. But now with the pandemic, I don't know if the timing was good for what you're doing with the pandemic, but, you know, I was actually thinking about, I know, I think you even talked about it in the book, right? That ideally it's face-to-face, right? You can have that interaction to the Zoom or live video meeting, right? Because you can at least see facial expressions in other areas. And then three, you know, a video message, right? And then short of that, it's probably descending order of effectiveness. Is effectiveness the right way to think about it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And and again, we all know that not every, and this is something we do get into um, in both in Rehumanize, our first book and the new one, Human Centered Communication, we get into like, when should you send a video message? So I just provided a three-part framework to think about is this message better as I would normally do it? Or is it better as a video? And so there are some messages where it's just not appropriate. You know, you and I, you know, went back and forth on the time here because you had another commitment and like, why go hard back to back? If, if Ethan has flexibility, unfortunately I did have flexibility. There's no reason for us to be sending videos back and forth to kind of just tweak the time. Right. Right. But if you had to cancel for some reason and, you know, we'd already gone back and forth a couple of times you know, you as the host who wants to create a great guest experience for all of your guests might take care to send a little 30 second video, say, Hey, I am so sorry. I'm not sure how this happened. You know, here's what the situation is. And I just really hope you'll understand. And in that way, I understand Brett's not just, this didn't happen for a few people who are listening. I made this whole scenario, but like (laughs) Brett's not just blowing me off and canceling on me because, you know, his buddy's in town and he'd rather go play golf. He's like, he has this legitimate thing. And so I can, like, you can, you can share that experience with me and I can get your real intent, your motivation, the idea that you still do have my best interests in mind. I can get that from you as a fellow human being, from your face and your tone and your body language in a way that I could never get from faceless typed out text. Yeah. Context is everything, right? You still haven't figured out how to put sarcasm and emojis yet. Yeah. I think, I think it's important. And that's why I take one step back and say, so why, why did you write the second book? What was, what were you seeing that said, I just got to get this out. <laughs> I want to educate more people. What was the, the motivation for book number two? Yeah. Great question. So Steve and I, again, Steve's my longtime friend and team member. He's our CMO and my boss and my co-author on Rehumanize Your Business. And 
we would playfully say something like, Hey, I got an idea for the second book and be like, Whoa, bro, too soon. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> not yet. Cause it's a, it's a thing. Like it's a, it's a great deal of effort. And, um, and there are a lot of, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, not just from an effort standpoint, but it's a roller coaster. And, uh, and so he said, you know, here's the deal. We all know that, you know, what we're like video messaging and video emails, the mechanics of what we're doing, but we've known the whole time that there's something more important going on here. And so let's explore that. But here's the best part, Ethan, you're not going to have to write the whole thing. We'll reach out, we'll hand select some people that view the world similarly to us, but with different backgrounds and expertise and have invite them in, give them some guidance and they'll write the chapter. So I was like, that sounds fantastic. Maybe we'll add some commentary to it or something like that. And so we did some of the initial meetings with some of the people that we picked and everyone, even someone like Shep Hyken, who's a Wall Street Journal, New York Times bestselling author of like nine books. He was like, nah, I just don't really want to write something for it. Like he also cautioned us because he'd be involved, been involved in, in other projects like that that it can feel really disjointed. And so we immediately scrapped it with Shep's advice and a couple other people and said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to create some interview outlines. Then we're going to do deep dives on each of these people, read their books, watch their YouTube channels, listen to their podcasts, read their blog posts, et cetera. And some of them we knew well, like I knew Shep reasonably well. Um, I had read a few of his books, et cetera, but we, we did these deep dives with these people and then kind of customized this generic question set and then just did these interviews. And then of course, ended up going back and forth afterward to clarify points or to round things out or whatever, but the, and I'll, I'll color the question a little bit more with this. Every interview started with these three kind of nested questions. One, what is your guiding business or sales philosophy? Two, what role does, does human connection and human relationships play in that philosophy? And then three, what role do live video meetings and presentations and recorded video messages play in that human connection and human relationship component. And so the goal was to explore, in short, how do we stay personal even when we're forced to be virtual? Because we know we're going to be selling, selling, serving, connecting, communicating more digitally, virtually, and online in the future, not less, period. You know, I don't think the word COVID or pandemic appears in the book at all. No. Um, but certainly, you know, the context would make that piece more relevant the, the idea that we're going to be doing this more, not less in the future, pandemic or not, we would do, be doing more of this in the future, not less. And of course, like so many other things, pandemic just accelerated that fact. The other fact simultaneously, and this gets into the, the subtitle of the book, A Business Case Against Digital Pollution, these digital, virtual and online spaces are going to be noisier and more polluted in the future, not less. And so walk that out one more step and say, okay, in light of that, it becomes more difficult, expensive, challenging to get anyone's attention at all. And then trust becomes more difficult to build and it becomes much more fragile and easier to lose and break. And so in light of all that, how do we proceed? What can we do in the way that we're reaching out to our prospects, our customers, our employees, our recruits, our partners, our vendors, our suppliers, all these people in our business ecosystem all of our stakeholders, how can we engage these people in, in a more effective way, knowing that we're going to be restricted to these visually and emotionally impoverished communication channels? And so that's what we set off to do. It was super fun. We got 11 amazing people to give us hours and hours of their time. And, uh, and I think it turned out pretty well, given how many like disparate sources of information are all poured into one vessel. Yeah, no, I think it worked out really well. And I may have shared it with you offline that I think it's it's really effective and impactful to have because again you're an expert in this space and you're co-author co-author expert in this space coming from you but to bring in outside voices to say hey this is how this works and one of the reasons I wanted to have you back on the show is one a big big fan of, of the book but two if you think about it from a you know a zero to ten podcast right so that most of these B two B business owners CEOs you know, wanting to grow their business or even think about starting a business in some cases, you know, building this in one of my reoccurring things is how do I build best practices into a small organization that's growing versus trying to turn the Titanic and get people to adopt principles and approaches, right? So I think this is why I wanted to have you come on and kind of talk about right the how, right? I want everybody to go pick up the book because I think we need three hours to break it down. But I think there's some general principles and ideas that people could start to use today, right? And maybe that's where we can get into next is if I'm a business owner and I do want to cut through the noise, I don't want to add to the, the pollution. I love that term, by the way, 
you know, how do I how do I start thinking about approaching this now? Yeah, I think the smaller organization has an advantage for the same reason you just described. There's so much at stake for very large and scaled organizations that in theory have found problem product fit and product market fit and are off and running and now they're pouring gas on a strong burning fire and all that. It's like it's really difficult to to pivot. And I think in a smaller organization, if you can, and this, some of this might sound provocative, but it's, I think we all accept it as true intuitively. And it's just a matter of figuring out how to do this in an institutional fashion. And of course, the smaller the organization, the easier it is to do, you know, some of the themes that emerged. Um, so chapter one, we define digital pollution. Chapter two, we define human-centered communication, which where we're taking the principles of human-centered design in a, which is a 30 or 40 year old practice and applying them to our daily digital communication. And then three through 13 is go a deep dive on all of these experts. And several of them are sales experts. We have a marketing futurist from Salesforce. We have an emotional intelligence expert with seven US patents in the analysis of facial coding data. Um, just a variety of really smart and awesome people. And each chapter features their deep expertise and is built on our, our research and our conversations with them. And in the end, Chapters 14 and 15, we make the people in the chapters talk to one another. Largely, there is agreement. There is a slight disagreement. You might have noticed that perhaps maybe like virtual backgrounds, um, among other kind of tactical things that some people say yes, always. Some people say no, never. But what I'm going to share here are some of the philosophies and, and strategies that are featured in chapter uh, 14 is, is, is Steve and I went back through all the interviews and like, you know, what themes really emerged. And one of them is this idea of helping rather than selling. Yeah, I love that. You know, I think it's um, it's about, and, and here's why. Now I'm going to go to Jacko Vanderkoy, founder of Winning by Design. This gentleman is amazing. If you haven't checked out the Winning by Design YouTube channel, it is amazing. If you are starting to build a business, particularly a SaaS business, but really any business, he is a revenue architect. He's a sales scientist. Jacko Vanderkoy is fantastic. And one of the things that he shared and continues to share but that he shared with us that I've, that I've adopted, and that's why I want to make sure I give him full explicit credit and tell people to listen to his YouTube channel. Is, is this idea that recurring revenue is, an Im, is a result of recurring impact. And I'll say that again. Recurring revenue is an outcome or a result of delivering customer impact that recurs. And I say that because up on the board in all these businesses, no matter what size they are, is the revenue number. This is where we need to be by the end of the year. This is where, therefore, this is where we need to be by the end of you know, January. So there is where we need to be by the end of Q1. Here's where we need to by the end of Q2. If we're going to stay at, are we pacing? How are we pacing? It's all about revenue. And it's important. Like we obviously need like very clear line of sight there. But if you can structure a young organization, not around how do we get to the revenue number, but you structure them around how do we make the most customer impact? How do we create repeating customer impact? then the revenue is going to result. If you deliver customer impact in a way that's meaningful and valuable, and impact, by the way, is just a catch-all for solving the problem, delivering a solution, making things easier, whatever your product or service is designed to do. When you can do that repeatedly, the people who buy will stay. And the people who stay will continue staying and they might expand and they might refer. And you're going to generate more positive word of mouth. And it's just like, and so this idea that we're going to go about this specifically from a let's promise recurring impact, which is really the sales and marketing process, we need to promise, or unless you're in a product-led growth model or some other kind of free or freemium or trial or piloting type scenario, right. you know, people can sample and start to get some of that impact before they ever give you a dime. Um, but really, if we, if we organize ourselves and we, and we challenge ourselves in our leadership meetings and as we're deciding who to hire next and what we're going to focus on, if we focus more on creating and delivering customer impact in repeated fashion, that's the foundation for the revenue. But instead we say, okay, that's how much money we need. How, where are we going to get the money? And that, like, so what winds up happening is we wind up polluting. We wind up acting more in our own interests than in the people who our success is built with and for and through. And so we, we're putting the customer second in that scenario. So we're putting right. the human second in that scenario to what does the machine want? What does the institution want? And the institution will continue to want uh, as its needs get met, it will continue to want it more. And so as we build and we scale, we continue doing these small things that dehumanize our team members and as a consequence, dehumanize our customers. It's like a give and take, right? Or our pr prospective customers. Yeah. And by that, I mean, you know, Mario Martinez Jr., the founder and CEO of Engresso, and Lauren Bailey, the founder and president of both Factor 8, 
uh, and Girls Club, which is an amazing organization. Both of them are kind of sales training and sales management training companies with, with Ven Grosso being much more focused on the virtual. They mutually refer business to one another, so they're complementary. Both of them in chapters eight and nine go deep on what we're doing, for example, to a BDR or an SDR in the standard software organization, standard SaaS business. Yeah, And it's like, crank out the activities, monitor the activities, the activities come to supplant the actual goal, which is probably a booked meeting or something like that. And we just like, we've, we've perverted the real intent of the whole thing as we've built this, the, the, the machine that's going to drive all the results. And so this isn't to say you can't use a machine, you can't use automation, everything needs to be bespoke, every touch needs to be a true personal human touch. That's far from what we're saying throughout, but this idea of losing sight of the real goal, which is to reach people with the promise of impact and then deliver that impact over and over and over again, it somehow oddly and perversely feels like a leap of faith to say, and if we do that well, then the revenue will take care of itself. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, that's, that's just one thing that came to mind there. And so the younger organization has this opportunity to set up in a way that treats their team members better and that treats their prospects better, that considers the people, considers their employees and considers their prospects and their customers in the design of these systems and processes that any growing business needs. At some point, you definitely need to systematize. You definitely need to build a repeatable process. But if we think first, again, drawing from the human-centered design principle, if we put the needs of the people first, we consider the impacts, positive and negative, of those that are affected by the system or process first, before we consider what technology makes possible and before we consider what the business needs to be viable, but those two things do matter as well. Right then we're setting up something that's going to be more sustainably successful for the long run. That's going to generate more recurring revenue. That's going to generate more positive word of mouth and all these other things. Yeah. And, and no, I, I love that. And I think too, it made me think even back up to the stop, you said always be helping, right. Versus always be selling, always be closing. That's it's just not effective. And we've joked before that sales has finally caught up to me, right. I'm more of a problem solver than I'm the hardcore salesperson. And what I, I found interesting and I liked, I think it was Jacko that had the, the bow tie funnel, right? The traditional funnel is broken. And I want you to dig into that in a second. But what I found, which I don't think very many people appreciate, especially the larger companies that are just cranking it out with SDRs or BDRs, their only mission is to get appointments. They don't care about the 98 others that don't. And you know, tying that into the bigger picture where at any given point, any of your ideal you know, buying profile, only 3% are in buy now mode. You could argue it's three, four, five, it doesn't matter. Some small number. And the only way you're going to get that other 97% to buy from you at some point is they need their first experience with you needs to be a good one, not, a, oh, not interested. Goodbye. I've got to go make my next call or outreach. And I think there was some analysis and I wish I could pull it back up in the book where you broke down what the cost to the business is of that poor experience to the, the 97. I'm adding some of my own numbers into it, yeah. but I think you know where I'm going with that, that there's just not a revenue cost. I think what your example uses, hey, I need to double revenue, but what's, what's the damage that's going to cause in the wake by following a traditional broken funnel? Yeah. Well, very long-winded yeah. <laughs> setup I'll, to I'll that go, question. I'll go straight at this, I think, as concisely as I can. So uh, I love that you drew, drew that out. It's really powerful. And in fact, I ended up watching his YouTube video a few times so I could try to capture it as well as I could in the book. So essentially what we're talking about here is, is impacts and counter impacts. And so, um, and this is, this is where the digital pollution comes in. And so, you know, we can say, congratulations, we can high five each other. We just moved this conversion number and I'll stick with your 97 here. We just moved our conversion number from 2.4% to 3.3%. That's amazing. It's a 25% lift. We are absolute geniuses. And so we can high five and be all excited about our 25% our, our lift to 3% conversion. And that's easy to measure. It's a positive success metric, but we are ignoring the 97%. We're ignoring that 97% failure rate and celebrating the 3% right now. Is that worth celebrating? Yes, absolutely it is. But we must also start considering what the costs of that 97% are. And so in that 97%, let's be generous and say like the vast majority are like, ah, swipe, delete, or ignore or whatever. And they're like, and they just go on about their day and they don't think about it. But let's just say that's 80% of them. And let's say 10% are 
actively engaged and they're, let's say 15, 15% are actively engaged and they delete and mark you for abuse or block you or block your BDR. The other thing that we add in there is Jocko uses superhuman, which allows you not just to block a sender, but to block an entire domain. And so if some share of that 97% of people say, damn these people for sending me the third irrelevant garbage and using variable data that's ripped off of LinkedIn, which by the way, isn't my job. It's just an organization I volunteer at, or it's a community group that I belong to. And I happen to list it as a job. And it's like, you know, this garbage stuff that we all see happening, some share of people will have had enough. And, um, and I'll talk about the big, vast majority and the consequences there too in a minute, but some slice of these people are angry. And now they block your entire domain. And now none of your sales team members can ever reach them ever again. So between unsubscribe, abuse, complaints, and block, you're diminishing your addressable market, especially if you're doing this thing over and over again, hoping to just, you know, if we just send out enough, if we send enough, if we call enough, if we blast enough, we're going to find that 3% that's actively buying right now and be able to make our number but you're losing sight of what are you actually doing in that market. And so now there's a tiny, tiny subsection. And you and I see this, Brett, because we spend time on LinkedIn, people screenshotting the emails or the LinkedIn messages and maybe blurring out your face and your name and saying, look what this jerk did for the fourth time. (laughs) Or like, you know, I accepted the connection request and did you see what I just got? You know, hey, I unsubscribed from these people's email, but look what just arrived again today. And they make negative word of mouth. They publicize it, et cetera. Now, again, those are the minority, but that is happening and you're diminishing your ability to reach those people. But you're also diminishing your ability to reach that large chunk of people in the future because A, um, they may unsubscribe or whatever, but they are training the machines that you are irrelevant to them because they're not opening the email, they're not replying, they're not clicking the link, they're not giving positive signals to the machines that are tracking all human behavior in these spaces. And they're saying, oh, this sender or this domain seems largely irrelevant to this person. And as we go forward, these machines are going to increasingly control, for our benefit as users, they're going to increasingly control what gets in front of us and in what priority order. Think about this too. You and I are both on LinkedIn, Brett, but we're connected to some, a lot of the same people, but some of the different people and we like different things and comment on different things. And so you and I could be side by side and we refresh the feed and I might see, you know, I'm making the number up, 200 mutual connections. I'm going to see three of our mutual connections. You're going to see 10 of them in the first 20 posts, not for any reason, except that you've engaged with their stuff more. And so everything we're seeing, like our Google search results, everything is contextually based. Our inbox will be contextually based and prioritized for us. I remember people freaked out when Gmail started adding tabs, right? Um, Like the promotion tab and everyone like, oh my gosh, how dare they take my promotional email and categorize it for the benefit of their, of their users, right? Like why should we think that a mass blast email to 5,000 people that's uniform that is promotional in nature is being abused by being put into a promotion tab. Like, so anyway, that, like, I just want to share a couple of those practical examples to say, if we think that there's no harm in that 97% failure rate, we're all, it's just head in the sand. Right. And it's going to be more and more that way as people's voices get louder, people get more angry and frustrated um, at the increasing noise and pollution and how hard it is for them to find the things that they really want to see. And the machines are constantly working on how to give them the things that they actually want to see. So that attention is going to be more difficult and more time consuming and more expensive for teams and people and companies to get if they're not respecting the time and attention that people uh, give on the other side of that stuff. Um, and, and so it becomes uh, pollution. And the more you pollute, I, I don't think that I'm idealistic in this to say the more we pollute, the more we're cutting off our nose to spite our face. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely, I think there was a time you could get away with it just by having your name out there and, you know, kind of the, the way I look at it. And again, you know me by now, I like to keep things super simple, right? So, you know, if I look at these smaller businesses that are starting to grow, like early days, your founder led or the owner's doing a lot of the sales, it's really one-to-one, right? And the tactics we're talking about trying to find that 93% out of 100 is one-to-one. And I may be more aggressive looking to, to find that. 
But for companies to truly grow and scale, even some of these big software companies that you know, employed two or 300 outbound sales reps, to do, they could get away with it. Now, if, when you want to transition from one-to-one, right, to one-to-many, you can't do that with any of the tactics that have been used for you know, 10 years in the digital and then 40 years in, in the old, you know, especially in the B2B world, of trying to connect with people. And it's, it's really about the, the one-to-many and providing that that human touch, right, with these, that, and understanding that that ninety seven percent, assuming you did your homework right, is somebody that could buy from you in the future, right? It's in your ideal market, and it may not be today, but if if you burn that bridge, you, it, to your point, you're shrinking that addressable market. So anything you should be doing should be saying, "Hey, we're here for you when you need us. Take this free, valuable." And I know it sounds idealistic, but I am convinced in more reading after your book that that's that's the way it's going to be. And you get organizations that are doing a ton of pollution, they're going to lose. And that's why there's so much opportunity, I believe, in the, the, the SMB world, the B2B, you know, even mid-market that can pivot and just their go-to-market tactics shift to a human-centered approach. I mean, it just seems so simple, but it's really hard just based on decades of you know, approaches in this space. Yeah, it's it's uh, just to go back to that human centered design model that I spoke to very quickly, like IDEO is the design firm that most popularized it. They're they're the greatest practitioner and proponent of it. They've been doing it for decades. They designed the first Apple mouse years ago using human centered design principles, which was like physical and ergonomic. Um, But they've also designed water systems in Africa uh, using human centered design principles, as well as all kinds of other products and services and systems and processes. You can apply these ideas to all kinds of things, which is why we wanted to apply it to our digital communication. And again, the three components are desirability and the needs of people, feasibility, the possibilities of technology, and viability, the requirements for business success. And so if you think of this for people who were listening as like, you know, three circles that overlap each other and they all ultimately overlap in the middle, we want to be in the middle of that. But so many of our, of our approaches um, are based on, we start with the, with the viability, the, the, the definition of business success, and then look at the feasibility of technology, and then we just apply, apply, apply. And so as the technology becomes cheaper and more powerful, we wind up doing things that don't best serve the needs of people because we're not really considering them because it's faster, it scales better, like all these things that we tell ourselves, um, and we are winning, right? Like it, it's working. And Again, we just defined that what looks like it working, well, like it's working may not actually be working, right? So because those, that, those negative outcomes are much more difficult to measure. Um, we don't like to see them. We don't like to talk about them or consider them. And so we just operate at that intersection of definition of business success and possibilities of technology. And all we're proposing in here is a shift a little bit over into the middle where we also intersect with the needs of people. Who is on the other end of this digital message or experience and what do they need or want? And if we just do that more often and earlier, everything's gonna go better. We all know this as consumers, whether we're buying you know, B2B products or services or whether we're buying things from other companies in our lives. You know, right. what restaurants do we prefer to go back to? Why do we continue to renew our Amazon Prime subscription? You know, all these things that we're doing it's because these companies are just a little bit more human centric. They're a little bit more customer centric and they think about me and know that if they take care of me, their business is going to be successful, um, which is, it, it seems again, somehow these start to seem like leaps of faith or acts of faith, even though we all know they're intuitively true. Like that's how it works. Uh, <laughs> right. And yet, because it's difficult to measure and difficult to model the immeasurable benefits of this approach, again, trust, values, positive word of mouth, like these, these, these positive outcomes, like the reasons people say yes, we all know that it's trust. And also baked into that is intent, right? Like humans, yeah. and this is in part why how we say what we say is significantly colors what we say. People are not judging what we say literally word for word unless we type out our emails and send them off because that's all they have to go on. People care about intent more than anything else. What is your motivation? Why me? Why now? Why this opportunity? Do you have my best interests in mind? Can I trust you? Are you? And then, and then there's like a 
second, third, fourth layer here, are you actually competent to deliver the things that you're talking about, right? right? Even though we lead with competence very often, they're looking for warmth first. And if you think about it, it's just a basic survival mechanism. It's the way we've been doing it for millennia. You or your people get approached by an individual or another group of people, and you're just trying to figure the situation out. Like, is this person who they say they are? Can I trust this person? Are they going to do what they said? And we get, we've survived, like, all of the billions of us who are here on earth are the offspring of people who learn to do that really well. And yet when we go digital, virtual or online, we're stripping so much of that information out. We're not giving people what they need to make safe, healthy, confident evaluations. That's why we propose more use of video, not to sell BombBomb accounts or to sell Zoom accounts or to sell Microsoft team accounts. We're doing it because that re-infuses all of our communication, live and uh, live synchronous communication like we're doing now, or recorded asynchronous like our listeners are enjoying right now, um, or the recipient of a video message or a typed out email. They're looking for that information. And unless we start infusing more of our digital, virtual, and online experiences and messages with the information people need and want to feel safe, to feel confident, to feel supported, to feel all the things they need and want to feel and all the things we want them to feel as part of an exceptional employee experience or customer experience, then we're leaving them short. We're leaving them to wonder. And if a competitor can satisfy that itch, just close that gap a little bit, then we lose out because trust is the foundation for everything. People will try to assert the idea. People have tried to assert the idea that attention is the, you know, the, the currency of the economy. And it is not. If you're playing the attention game, you're playing a short game. You're playing a shallow game. Yeah. If someone, especially now, if you give someone your attention, you are expecting that it is rewarded, that, that they're going to fulfill whatever promise earned your attention in the first place. And that it's, that it gives you back more than you put into it. That is how you build this positive cycle of, Oh, Here's another post from that company or another ad from that company or another voicemail from that company or another LinkedIn message from that rep. If we can honor people's attention and give them more than they expect to receive in that basic exchange of value, they learn to trust us and that buys us much cheaper attention, much faster attention in the future. But it requires that we honor that attention build trust, create engagement, create that positive loop with those people. And the way to do that is with a more human-centered approach to our daily digital communication. And it's it's just the way that it is. People are machines. Like, that's how it's going to work. That's how it's working now. And that's how it's going to work. And I think, again, from an opportunity standpoint, if so few people are doing this or doing it well, it can be a differentiator for your company and or individually, right? As you're networking and all these other, anything in life, right? It's all about the human connection. Really quick story. I took a call. I took a sales call. Some guy cold prospected me on LinkedIn for a customer experience platform. It's a very large company. I'm sure it would have been a six-figure install that would have dramatically affected our entire customer team of sales marketing and customer success. Big deal. So I, I, I'm excited about the call. I read the stuff they sent me in advance. We get on the call. There are two people on the call. Neither one of them has their camera on. So I'm standing there like I am now in my office. And I'm like, who are these dudes? Like, I kind of want to know them. I want to like, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're talking back and forth. It was like, why don't we just do this over the phone then? And just think about what a missed opportunity that is. You have a half an hour of my attention. I host a podcast on the topic that your product scratches the itch of. If anyone's going to, ch- I'm like, I'm not the buyer. And I told them that in advance, but I can certainly champion this inside the organization. There are definitely a lot of projects moving that I could tie together into some kind of a unified piece. Like, why wouldn't you turn your camera on? Yeah, I don't know. That's a like, great I, question. I don't, like, and, like, we're even tackling those basics in this book about not just how to turn the camera on or why to turn the camera on. I, I, we're so far beyond that. I mean, that's why it was so mind-blowing that you're selling me a six-figure install and you're not even going to introduce yourself to me in a basically human way, even though we're like so crazy. Um, but how do we show up on those calls in a way that lets other people feel seen and heard and appreciate? What are the small things we can do besides simply turning the camera on to you know, get more information or give a stronger sense of trust or to make sure that people understand our motivations and our intent and these, these kinds of things. So anyway, I, I'm just mind, I'm mind blown at how far some people don't go still today. 
Well, it's, uh, it's all the way it's been built and baked for 10, 15 years. This is the way you reach people. This is it's numbers game. It's a formula and it's, it's not the, the, the connection. And I think even, you know, in some of the specifics, even in the video messages, you know, I had one of the quotes I loved was it, you're better to be on emotion versus on message, right? Yeah. Aspects that comes of, from our friend, Dan Hill. Yeah. Dan, yeah. To, to say it again. It's more important to be on emotion than on message. So we're so concerned about putting scripts in people's mouths and writing people's emails for them when in fact, it's more important if we're going to motivate people to, to act and behave, whether that's reply to this email, pick up the call, um, schedule on my calendar, take the survey, whatever we're trying to motivate people to do, it's all driven by emotion. In addition, the more we can infuse um, some degree of emotion into our messages and experiences, the more memorable we are because emotion drives memory, not just motivation. And so we're all focused on the right message. And it's important. We need to position ourselves well. And the message is part of connecting in an emotional way. That's why right. storytelling is so popular. And you can like, it all, it all kind of works together. But I think we're so focused on being on message repeatedly that we lose sight of being on emotion. And again, dehumanizing our own team members and forcing them to do it exactly this way, exactly in this order with these exact words puts pressure on them in the wrong way. And so they wind up seeing, uh, sorry, looking robotic, sounding robotic, and here's the worst part, feeling robotic, right? If you turn your team members into robots and you hide them behind cloaks of digital anonymity, you might just as well not even have those team members. True, so you true. You might just as well, like just search for a better piece of technology. And when in fact, if you're interviewing you know, if you're listening to the show and you're interviewing your first account manager or your first account executive, because now you're ready to hand off that sales function, you're looking for things like trust, responsiveness, curiosity, all these things that we like in people that we want to hang out and have dinner with or get onto a sales call with um, and follow up with. And all this. you're looking for these unique characteristics of human beings. And then so often we're equipping them with tools that don't allow them to leverage any of those strengths until 18 or 34 touches down the line when you finally can, you know, get together on a Zoom call or in person or whatever. And so, you know, how do we let our people be people in such a way that people say things like, I like when Brett reaches out to me. Brett is always so helpful. I'm so glad I took that call with Tina. Tina really seems like she's going to get this done for us, right? These types of things. How do we unlock and unleash our people knowing that they're restricted to digital, virtual, and online spaces in a way that allows those types of things to happen? Because that is where the money is. Yeah, no, I, I love it. And I know we're starting to run short on time, but there's two more things I want to cool. hit you with. And I think they're tied, but maybe not. The one was the platinum rule, right? Which I love. You can touch that in a second. But then the other one that kind of stuck with me was be 20% more human. So I'll let you choose which way you want to go with that first. But those are the two areas I'd like to unpack just a little bit. Cool. Yeah, really quickly. So the, the golden rule came up a couple of times. The golden rule is present in every single major religion and philosophical system. Anyone who's tried to tackle why are we here and how are we supposed to live arrives at some version of the golden rule. Treat others as you prefer to be treated. And yet, we set up systems and processes that treat our employees in ways that we would not want to be treated like, oh, I don't want to do that job. Why would you design a job that you wouldn't want to do, right? Like I get you might not have the skills or the strengths or the interest to do it, but why would you set it up in a way you're like, oh, I do not want to do that. Likewise, we wind up doing things to our customers that we don't like being done to us when we are prospective customers. And so we can walk that out and, and apply that uniformly. But I like that you drew out the platinum rule, which some, which some people may be familiar with. It's treat others as they prefer to be treated. This is where we move past like mass or segmented approaches where we're applying our rule to all of these things and all of these people and instead start to use things like the notes in our CRM replies back to our emails, form fills and survey responses that individual customers have given us and keeping track of them in such a way that we can further customize and personalize their experience with us because they're giving us the information to treat them as they prefer to be treated. Now, it's not easy to do, but the technology is making it easier and easier. So to me, the highest level of a human-centered message or experience is one that is truly bespoke, designed for that individual human being. 
Um, your business model might not support that at scale. I would challenge people to say, really test the limits of what's scalable and unscalable, especially in a young organization. We at BombBomb, bootstrap company that's made its way past $25 million. Like we did things for way too long in an unscalable manner. We could have maybe done that differently, but I cannot tell you how much we learned by doing the unscalable for, for whereas today, because you know, in 2011, when I joined the company, so much of what's available now for a lot less money wasn't even available right. and or it was just way too expensive for us at the time. And it's gotten cheaper and more powerful. And so now you have this opportunity to like scale quickly, but we're so often scaling things that we don't understand uh, because we haven't talked to enough people. We haven't invoked the platinum rule often enough. And we're maybe not even taking the approach with the golden rule in mind. So that's a pass on that. As for the 20% more human that comes from Lauren Bailey. She really goes deep into the problems with how we're structured and organized today. I highly recommend chapter eight, especially to a young leader in a young organization yes. um, or, or, or a leader in a young organization, I should say. The leader can be of any age. Uh, the organization <laughs> is growing quickly. She really breaks those problems down a lot. But you know, her point is that, and it's kind of like video messaging going back to the beginning, the act alone is differentiating right now. There are so many people not using video messages that when you use a video message, it, the act alone differentiates you much less who you are, how you present yourself, how you carry yourself, what it feels like to watch you and experience you on camera, et cetera. That is all further differentiating, but the act alone is differentiating. Lauren's point is that simply by allowing our people to be 20% more human or for our organization to allow a customer to feel 20% more human than most companies today, than your competitors allow today, then you're at a massive advantage because that's how early we are in kind of escaping the trappings and, and being enamored of and bedazzled by the cheap, powerful technology that allows us to do a lot more activity in a lot less time. Another way to think about this is there are still the vast majority of organizations organizing around efficiency and not focusing enough on effectiveness because there's, there's a balance there. Another language that comes out of this is art versus science. So many organizations are biasing in favor of the science when even, you know, very often we have bad data hygiene. And so like the whole science has to be drawn into question over the art. There's not enough respect for the art. Gosh, I could talk about this for two hours and we're not going to, I'll, I'll wind down here. Um, so effectiveness versus efficiency, science versus art. Like these are all things we just need to find the balance. We're not saying like throw out the science or efficiency is completely a wrong thing to focus on or that revenue is the wrong thing to be up on the board. We're just saying, let's balance this out. Let's really focus on how we're delivering customer impact. Every salesperson needs to understand what's happening post-sale so they can make a better, stronger, clearer promise and maybe even create some of that impact pre-close, pre-sale, right? Because it's not, a, we all know, your listener knows, Brett, that it's not about the first sale. That first sale might actually be unprofitable. It's about the right. second or third renewal and the fifth renewal and the expansion and the two referrals that came from that. That's where it's at. And so if we can just make some of these shifts and start respecting effectiveness a little bit more, respecting the art a little bit more and respecting customer impact a little bit more, we're just putting ourselves in a better position to be more healthy business and a more healthy community and a customer community and an employee community for years to come. Yeah, no, that's so well said. And you're right. I think it does come back to just, hey, think about your, put your customer at the center of this, right? And, and I do 100% agree that, you know, lifetime value of that customer, not including what they could do with referrals and everything else. It's still an afterthought for so many companies. And you're right. It isn't just a, the sale, always be selling, always be closing. It's, it, it just, you can still get away with it. You, there's still hacks you can do. There's things that you can do to drive temporary growth. But what I've really come back to, and I don't think it's aspirational anymore, maybe it's still a little bit, is, is build it the way you're talking about, right? Connect with that 97 that doesn't know you, but you've got to reach them differently and add the human touch where it makes sense. If somebody's just looking for hours of operation, no, I don't need a video message for you to tell me that you're open from you know, seven, to, seven to four. But if there is some context that's important, add that human touch to it. And then especially you know, the onboarding and then after process, which probably do a whole episode on that piece as well. So I think that's a, that's a great place to, to end on. I do highly encourage people to, to check out your book and your podcast. Because again, I think 
customer's experience, and you've seen me write about it, is at the center of differentiation. And this is the perfect way to help put that customer experience or even prospect experience into the center of it too. And the other thing we haven't talked about is the, the number of tools that you also have on your website that you reference in the book that go check it out. So anything we've talked about today, you could probably find a few of the forms, but if you really want to get and understand why this is important, you know, go, go get Ethan's book. And I believe it'll be out the same week this, this podcast is going live. So the timing should be perfect. We'll put a link in there for you, Ethan. Um, but I do not, I do have to ask you the same question we asked back on episode 43 is this day and age, Ethan, what is one thing that you would highly recommend? It could be personal or professional. Um, I think we know where you are with making it <laughs> personal, but uh, just curious, what's, what's, what are you working on today? What's top of mind for you? Um, I guess I'll tie it into where we were today. I think, you know, whether we want to use the Jeff Bezos putting the empty chair in the room to think about the customer or whether we open our standups differently, find a space, whether it's we challenge the ex entire executive team to have one customer conversation a week or one customer conversation a month, whatever it is, find a way to be in greater communication with your customers and not just in terms of you know, sending out surveys and tracking the number and seeing how it trends. But like, what are they saying? What language are they using? How are they thinking about it? Because that is, again, human-centered design starts with, the per, with, with people and, and it involves a great deal of immersion and understanding. I'll use the word empathy. Like that is where it all starts. If we're going to set up systems, processes, products, services that are actually meant to create and deliver value for people and thereby create recurring revenue for our organizations, it takes a lot more customer understanding. And so um, I know we've thrived on that over the years. It's also helpful that our customers have video messaging so they can send videos back and we can do this <laughs> like asynchronously. Um, so I feel like we have an advantage there. But, um, you know, true to the spirit of this book and this message, I think what more can we do to truly understand and not just understand for the purpose of writing a better email or understand for the purpose of getting more people to show up for the meeting. Those are all good too, but understanding for the sake of understanding because it affects everything. Yeah. Now, love it. Love it. Love having you on. It's always great conversation. And I could, like I said, we could probably talk for another hour, but <laughs> yeah, I know I you're busy forward, in the middle of this conversation. <laughs> uh, so I appreciate Ethan. And if, if folks want to learn more about you or connect with you, what's the, the best place for them to do that? Awesome. You can learn more about both books at bombbomb.com slash book. You can email me directly, Ethan, E-T-H-A-N, at bombbomb.com. You can hit me up on LinkedIn. Again, it's Ethan Butte. Last name is spelled B-E-U-T-E. I'm happy to hear from anyone on any of these topics. And um, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. Thank you, Ethan. We'll have you on before another 80 episodes go by to, to talk further about Because I think this is such an important topic. So I do want to keep revisiting it and... Um, Maybe we can flesh a little deeper in a couple of other areas. Next yeah, there's time. a lot, a lot more to talk about. I enjoy it. I appreciate it. And as I said, uh, maybe on a LinkedIn comment, it's going to be a very rare and unique circumstance where you reach out and ask me for something, and I'm going to say no. Yeah. <laughs> so, so hit me up anytime. You know All where right, I am. Test them out on this audience. <laughs> yeah. All right, Ethan. Appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too.